Bible or a smartphone or some device, you'll be looking at the text with us this morning. We will be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you haven't been with us before or not very often, kind of our, our tendency here at Redeemer is we, we take a, a book of Scripture and we just work through it um, chapter by chapter over the course of several weeks or months or however long it takes. And so we've been in 1 Timothy for the last several weeks. Um, prior to that, we were in the prophetic book of Amos um, in, in the Old Testament. Um, so if you've got a Bible, 1 Timothy 3, a little bit of recap as you're turning. Um, this is a letter that, that Paul, the apostle, has written to Timothy. Um, Timothy is currently in the city of Ephesus. Paul is in Macedonia. Paul is writing this letter. Timothy was special uh, to Paul. He was not a son, but he was like a son, in that uh, Paul and Timothy had served in ministry together. Paul could have been his father in age, and they, they were close. It was an, an intimate relationship, and Paul is writing to Timothy saying, look, um, I want, there are false teachers that have arisen in Ephesus that you need to deal with it. I want you to deal with um, the household of God, the church being set up there, And so he's writing these instructions to Timothy, which is meant to then also be read to the church. And so it's a private letter that has a public reading. Um, It's most likely was written in the early to mid-60s, sometime after the book of Romans was um, ends. Paul at that point is in prison. He most likely was got out of prison for a short period before being re-arrested and executed by Nero. And it was that time frame that this letter and the other pastoral epistles were written. Um, it's the end of kind of an apostolic area, era where the disciples, those who walked with Jesus, um, are dying. They're being executed, martyred. And so the church is being set up um, with leadership who didn't walk with Jesus. And so this is, is an important aspect of what's going on here. So I want us to read initially just one verse in chapter 3, verse 14, and then we'll come back and read some more here in just a moment. So Paul writes to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And so we know that this whole letter is being written by Paul to Timothy because he's setting up the the household of God, which is the church. It is the family of God. Now listen, most of you... um, have, I'd say, privilege or the experience of having been around Jude a little bit on a, on a Sunday morning, running through here, being loud. Um, so Jude is our four-year-old son, and he currently is a parrot, all right? So anything he hears, he says. And this doesn't matter if he's in Bartlett's and hears two men yelling at each other across the store. It doesn't matter if it's um, someone in the neighborhood playing music that we might not want him to hear. It doesn't matter if it's older kids calling each other certain names. If he hears it, he says it. Now, Carson, who is nine at this point, never really went through that stage because she always had her own words to say. She was not bothered with other people's words. She had enough of her own. But Jude just, he hears things and he wants to try them out. And so there's a constant conversation in our household right now of trying to thread this needle of, all right, Jude, they're not bad people, but in our home, we don't say fill in the blank, right? 
and, and of him not then going back and having a conversation with, well, my daddy said, right? So we're trying to like walk through this line of, in our home, there's some things that we don't say. And it doesn't, right? And it doesn't change that you can still interact with these people, but we don't, we don't want to hear you say these phrases without making him want to say them more, right? And so that's, that's, that's been a really fun last year of just kind of conversation that's been pretty constant. But what we understand is that, that every household is set up a little differently, right? If you were a kid and went to sleepovers, right, you knew the friend when their parents invited you over for a sleepover that you wanted to go because they were super lax, right? And they were going to have the best snacks and they were going to give the most freedom, right? You also knew the one whose parents were the most strict. And you had to think a little harder about, can I steal myself for this evening? Like, can I make it through? Is she going to kill me? You know, those type of moments. Because different households are set up in different ways. And so ultimately, what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, we have to know that we are the household of God, that those who are the church, remember the church is a people, that he is setting them up to be a home, a household that has some order and structure. And ultimately, the church is a gift from God. He has set it up. He's given it to us. He has organized it for a reason right? For his worship and his glory and for mission that other people would come to know Jesus and love him, that he is worthy of additional worship. And often what has happened is the household of God, the church, has been so dysfunctional, there's been so much infighting or or, or inward focus that the outside world has ignored the church because it has no real dealings or reference in their life. But what Paul is saying is the church should be this buttress of truth. It should be this thing that is seen and known because they they have the living God amongst them. And that they should be on mission. And in order to do that, then we need to set things up in a healthy and right manner, trusting God's design, knowing that He has given us the church and then He has put sinful, fallible people in charge of leading some of these things. So it's why even more so we need to come to Scripture to make sure we are setting things up appropriately. That, that, that we would see that it is for worship and for mission. And so ultimately Scripture gives us two church offices, two, two areas of leadership. The first, Paul preached and did a wonderful job last week in the first half of chapter 3 looking at elders. And this week we're going to look specifically at the role of deacons. Now listen, if you have a church background, deacons may be all but a cuss word to you, right? Because you have suffered at the hands of deacons, or, or you weren't really sure what a deacon was, but you knew those people were deacons and they were a little scary, right? Like that, So I've, I've been in deacon meetings, right, where things were thrown literally across the room, right? where physical type um, accusations and like posturing was, was done, that, that deacons have a reputation historically. And yet Paul is going to say, look, the deacons play a vital role in the health of a church. So here's the caution for us before we look at this. Some of you may say, hey, last week Paul preached on elders. Not an elder. Don't plan on being an elder. Now you're talking about deacons. Probably not going to be me either. So I can just check out. <laughs> But we have to be reminded that ultimately the role of deacons and elders is to equip the saints of which we are for the work of ministry, right? That we would have a household that is set up in a healthy manner for the glory and good of Jesus' name and for the mission that others would come to faith. 
And so we want to here at Redeemer use the term elder to describe those who are elders. We want to use the term deacon to describe those who are deacons so that when you're looking at them, you know where to come back to and say they fit this. They, they look like this or they don't, and we need to deal with that. So let's pick up in verse 8 of chapter 3. So the first seven verses of chapter 3 are on elders, beginning in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So chapter 3 begins with saying, hey, if anyone aspires to be an elder, and he then lists qualifications. In verse 8, what Paul writes is deacons likewise. So he started a new category for us. He's, he's, he's separating these two roles. And he just begins to lay out some qualifications. And initially he just says deacons must be dignified. Dignified is simple here. It's just saying it's someone who's honorable, who's respectable, who's worthy of the role. Often what has occurred in churches, if someone just stick, sticks around long enough, we're like, we better give them a title or something. Let's, let's make them a deacon because they've been here for a couple decades. And what Paul is saying is, look, they, they have to fit the role. They must be dignified, worthy, respectable, honorable. He then begins to lay out some things that would show that they are dignified. So dignified is kind of a catch-all. And then he begins to lay out some specifics. So the first one he says is not double-tongued. Here's, here's what it means. This is someone, this can happen in one of two ways. One, it can be someone who says one thing, and, but they mean or do something else, right? They're just, they're hypocritical in their speech, right? Or it could be someone who says one thing to you and another thing to someone else, right? And what they're doing is they're not bringing peace, they're creating factions, right? They're, they're, maybe they're, they're flatterers, right? And so I'm going to flatter you, but when I come over here, I'm going to talk about you to someone else. Right, that their tongue is double-tongued. You don't know whether they are trustworthy, whether they mean what they say. So what, we, what a deacon should look like, right, is someone who keeps their word, whose word means something, right? That in a situation between, in conflict, do they make the situation worse or do they bring peace, right? Are they able to talk to two people who are currently disagreeing and bring about resolution and peace and reconciliation, or do they just fan the flame and feed fuel into the disagreement, right, while staying in the good graces of both, right? Are they able to speak the truth in love? In, in the midst of conflict, are they fair brokers, right? Would both sides go, hey, they were able to show me where I was wrong and where I needed restoration or reconciliation or repentance, and they were also able to minister to me, and the other side would say the same. Or does one person say, I got railroaded because they were friends with this one, right? Is there, are their words trustworthy? Are they, are they true? Do they say what they mean? Are they not misleading? He then continues. They need to not be addicted to much wine. So again, it, right, to, to be a drunkard, to be controlled by this would show a lack of self-control, 
a lack of discipline. So ultimately, he's not saying if you're a deacon, you got to drink. But he's saying if you do, you need to be, have self-control. You need to be an example. And so ultimately, someone who's in leadership like this needs to be an example if they do drink or if they don't. Both, right? Because Paul is giving some freedom here. And so listen, we can be an example in your drinking by, by, by drinking in a way that doesn't lead to people falling. It doesn't lead other people into drunkenness. It shows that you're able to be in control and temperate, right? But you can also be an example in, in, with alcohol by not drinking, by not condemning those who do, right? Who are doing it in a biblically honoring fashion. So he says, look, I want you to be an example in these things. I grew up, um, I, I didn't see a lot of like people who, I, I, I knew people who did not drink and I knew people who got drunk. I didn't see a lot of people drink responsibly. And so, right, Paul is saying, right, if you're going to, then there's a, a responsibility here. All right, he continues, not to be greedy for dishonest gain. Now listen, one of the, probably the the reputations that deacons have had in some churches is that they're like power brokers, right? They want the role. They want the responsibility. They want the power. And what Paul is saying is, look, you cannot be in it for dishonest gain. Often one of the roles that a deacon's going to have is they're going to be in charge of some aspect of church finances. Can you trust them with them, right? Do you trust them to be, to be fair and to be above board? The role of a deacon is one to be self-sacrificial, not self-congratulating. Right? That they are serving the overall body and not just bringing in what they want for their own power. They're not pulling things in and using these resources for their own good. Are they someone that encourages generosity? Right? Are they someone that when you look at it, you say, man, whether they've had a little or they've had a lot, they've honored God with it. If I, if I spent my money the way they did, if I viewed my money like they did, I would be pleasing the Lord because I'm spending it right. I'm not looking to hoard. I'm not looking not to be generous. They, they are not greedy for dishonest gain. This is both in the church or in the, the world. Verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So what is the mystery of the faith, right? What, what, what Paul's writing about here is the gospel, right? That for a while in human history, how God was going to redeem the world was a secret, right? It had not yet been revealed of how is God going to take these rebels, these, these sinners who are far from him, who have walked away from him, and how is he going to get them back when he is a holy God? The mystery of the faith is the gospel. The the mystery is Jesus who came in the flesh, who lived the life we were supposed to, died the death that we deserved, and then beat sin and Satan and death in his resurrection and is living today. That That God satisfied his standard, his holiness, through the sacrifice of Jesus who met that standard and was a substitute for us. So he says the deacon has to understand this. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. And what this means is they don't just have to know these things. Their behavior then has to show that they know it. Does their behavior exhibit that they know it and they believe it? Right? Is there something coming from this internal source that they have been rescued by God? That they have known that they were a rebel who was saved by grace and mercy that they did not deserve. And so they are now compassionate. They're now long-suffering. 
They're now those who pursue those who are far, right? That they are reflecting the rightful image and character of God. That they hold this truth and they hold it with a clear conscience because they're walking in it. He then continues. So, let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. What, what he's saying here is there should be a time where people are just, it's not that you say, maybe you say this, maybe you don't, that, hey, we're considering this individual for a deacon. Everybody watch them, right? It's just saying, hey, when it's time and we say this person we believe is a deacon, no one should go, really? Are you sure? Wait, do you know? that they should have walked in a manner worthy of this calling well before ever given the title. That we should know them, that we should know their character, we should know how they've spent their money, we should know whether they're a drunkard or not. We should see their reputation. It should have been known well in advance, well beforehand, whether they have met this expectation. That they would have observable, observable behavior. That no one would be surprised that they're doing this job whether or not they ever receive the title officially, right? That they have been tested. Now we get to verse 11. And I want you to note that there's another likewise. So we saw in the first seven verses talk about elders. In verse 8, he then says deacons likewise must be dignified. And now in verse 11, he says wives likewise. Now listen, this is going to get into a period where some churches disagree, right? Because some churches um, have women deacons. Other churches say it's a male-only role. So we looked at elders last week. We determined that based on our, our, our reading and understanding of scriptures, the role of elders is for, for men only. But now we're at the role of deacons, and many continue to say it's for men only. And we're going to, this morning, say at Redeemer that we see the role of deacon is open to men and women both. And here's why. Here's some reasons. Look at verse 11. Um, It begins with their wives. Now, in any translation, translators have to make some hard decisions. But in the ESV, this is an area where I would disagree with the translators because the there, the, the pronoun there, isn't there in the Greek, right? And the word for wives can be translated as equally wives or women, right? It can be either one. And so they made a, a, a judgment here that what Paul was saying was their wives and now talking about deacons' wives. Now here's where I'm going to say there's an argument of why we would believe this is talking about not deacons' wives, but deacons who are women. It's because first, there was no list of qualifications for the wife of an elder. So why would we all of a sudden begin to list qualifications for a deacons' wives if there are none in the first seven verses for elders? right? That, that doesn't make a lot of sense. That's an argument from silence, but that doesn't make a lot of sense. One, um, the word, again, could be women or wives. The, there's no there, there, right? In the, in the Greek. And I want you, if we turn over to Romans 16, verse 1, we read this. This is Paul writing, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, talking of a woman, a servant, which is the same word of deacon, of the church at Sinishara. All right? I'm a little tongue-tied this morning. 
So he says that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So he lists Phoebe as a servant, as a deacon, and then specifically ties her to a church. Right? Now look, this could just mean that she's serving the church. Very likely she's the one maybe even bringing the, the letter of Romans right, from Paul. But it lists her as a deacon. And now we see this argument here that Paul says, I want to talk about the deacons, right, who are women. And so he continues. Likewise, we see this categorizing again. It's like he's starting a new category. Must be dignified. The same word, right, that they should be respectable, worthy, honorable. Here's some ways they can be dignified. That they're not slanderers, right? Again, their language is not tearing people down, but it's building people up. They're not using their role to destroy. They need to be sober-minded, right? It means that they're, they're, they're not controlled by emotion and tossed to and fro, but they're able to consider the, the content of what's going on and make sober-minded decisions. And that they are faithful in all things, right? In every area of life that they're showing a trust, a belief, um, a this anchoring of the gospel in their souls. And so they are faithful as moms and they're faithful as wives and they're faithful in any sort of outside um, work and they're faithful in the church, right? They're faithful living according to the gospel in all areas of life. Now listen, this is an an open-handed issue. It's not an issue of primary concern. It's a secondary or tertiary issue. If you disagree and you think, hey, I don't think deacons can be women, right? It's one side isn't going to hell on this issue, right? We can disagree. But here at Redeemer, we will have and allow women's, women to be deacons because we see it as one role here. So Paul then continues with a couple final qualifications. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, right? He, it's the same qualification that he gives to the elders that they need to be one woman men, that they're not giving themselves emotionally or physically to any other woman, right? They're, they're a one-woman man. And that they're managing their children and their own households well. So again, he's bringing in this language of household, that they're taking care of the family that God has given them, their first church, right? And so he says, look, if they're doing that well, then we can give them a role, a task in the household of God to lead and to serve well. Why would this be a qualification that you have to be able to take care of your own home? For a couple reasons. One is that some people have been known to forfeit their family at home because they feel like the church gives more, um, they, they, they gain a larger reputation, right? They're seen and known more and there's more people to applaud them. And at home, nobody's applauding you, right? No one's impressed. There's just a job to be done. And so some have, would leave their families and, and, and just kind of check in periodically in order to serve the, the, the better audience. So he's saying, that's not okay. You can't punt on your family. But it's also that, look, if their family is in disarray, their, their attention, attention needs to be there. They need to be dealing with what's going on with their wife and with their kids, with their family. That they don't abandon but they're, they're there and they're consistent and they're faithful. Listen, a household at home is hard work. It's long. It's tedious. It's having the same conversation of Jude. We don't say that. 
Jude, we don't say that. Jude, we don't say that. And we're going to do it again tomorrow. Right? There's the, the, the imagery I feel like as a parent sometimes is of a blacksmith shop, right? Where you see someone trying to bend a piece of hot iron, right? And there's this long, slow process of heating it and moving it just millimeters at a time, heating it and moving it, heating it. And if you go too hard, too fast, too quick, you break it. You stress it. The metal's no longer any good. And if you don't do it enough, the metal doesn't give shape. It stays what it was. That, that the reason we want to see deacons who are managing their own households well is because it's shown they're willing to persevere. They're willing to be faithful, to stick in through the long, hard lack of applause of just the work of pointing their family, their spouse, their children to Jesus over the long haul. That they're a servant there. They're not domineering. That they're an example in difficulty. Right? Like the circumstances of life aren't always of our choosing or of our own mistakes. Sometimes life just hits us. How do they navigate that with their kids? How do they navigate that with their spouse? How do they navigate sickness? How do they navigate hard things that their kids are doing? Right? So ultimately, we, we could look at this and say, look, if your kids are a wreck, if they're a mess, then you can't do this. But are they an example of patiently pursuing and faithful to their kids in the midst of their kids making their own sin and, and errors and mistakes? Would you look at them and say, look, your kid hasn't turned out the way you hoped, but I would want everyone to live as you did as a dad as you pursued that kid. Right? Like, the, Are they an example of someone who has faithfully pursued and loved and pointed their children to the Lord? Look, we cannot save our kids. We can't. God can. So we ask the one whose arm is not too short to save, to save. And in the meantime, we point them to Jesus. And we correct things when we need to correct them. And we give grace when we need to give grace. And we give mercy when we need to give mercy. And we are faithful to that. But our children's decisions ultimately are going to be their decisions. And so the deacon is one who hasn't punted and said, Whoa, that's a mess. That thing's on fire. Let's go hang out at church but one who is locked in and stayed in. So now when things get hard in church and sometimes relationships go awry in the church and sometimes there are hard situations that are not fixed in one day, you know that they're willing to lean in and walk through hard situations and circumstances, whether it's in their own home or with the household of God. Right? That's why we want to see that done in their home. So Paul has written Timothy and said, look, it's, it's a good thing if someone aspires to the role of elder. It's a good thing. They should want that. He continues that same idea of this being a positive if we look at verse 13 for deacons. For those who serve well as deacons, they gain. He's like, there's something you gain. Two things. A good standing for themselves, right? Which just means that you gain esteem, that people would say, you've been faithful and we're, we're honored and proud of you. And a second is this, that they would gain a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. What he's saying is this, that your walk with Jesus is going to deepen. That your faith is going to be fed and enriched. Your walk and your faith are deepened and strong and strengthened as you see God be faithful in your home and in the household of God. As you lean in and serve and find Him to be near and faithful. That you gain 
Here's the, the thing that as we begin to wrap this up, the character for an elder and for a deacon are almost identical. And Paul noticed this last week and mentioned it as well. And the character for all believers is the same. Right? This is what all believers' character should look like because we are becoming in Christ's image. We are becoming more like Him. So what an, a deacon or an elder has done is they have been consistent. They have proven that Jesus is doing this work of transformation over the long haul in their life. And that when the circumstances of life have, have hit, they haven't bailed out. They haven't walked away from Jesus. They haven't said, well, I'm sick. God, what have you done? But they have leaned in and trusted him. When financial difficulty has come, they haven't said, okay, God, I'm out. I thought I was a deacon. You're supposed to send me money, right? Like they haven't, they haven't done anything weird, right? Like they've just leaned into the circumstances of life and said, I trust what God is doing, even when I don't understand it, even when I don't like it. I am walking in faithful trust and obedience to him. And so that is the character that all believers are called to. And deacons and elders have just shown that they're going to do that through the ups and downs of life. And so the primary difference now between deacons and elders is this. The deacons are not called that they have to be qualified to teach. Did you notice that? That there was nothing about their teaching ability. Now listen, it doesn't mean that deacons can't teach. Because if you turn to Acts 7, we see Stephen, who is a deacon, preaching one of the greatest sermons in the New Testament. Powerful right? They have to hold, right, the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They have to understand the gospel. And so they're able to teach. They don't have to teach, okay? And so an elder's role is uh, leading with authority, is teaching, and a deacon is leading by serving. So deacons become the lead servants. Listen, church, all of us serve. We don't get to say, not a deacon, not going to pick that up. Not a deacon, not going to serve. We are all servants of the king. We are all servants of the kingdom. What a deacon has done is they are leading out and serving. They are facilitating additional ministry and additional service happening. So what that's going to look like here at Redeemer is it's going to be task-oriented. Right? We're not going to say, you're a deacon, you're a deacon, you're a deacon, you're a deacon, you're a deacon. Okay, we have seven deacons, but I don't know what to tell you to do. Deacons are going to be people who are serving the body by specific tasks, right? So that can be things like children. That can be technology. That could be the band, right? Then in Acts 6, what we saw was that an issue had arisen where, where the, there was a class distinction and a race distinction happening of where the widows of the, the Hebrew-speaking or the Greek-speaking women, were they being served, taken care of sufficiently with resources, and, and the apostle said, hey, it, there's some turmoil happening. We're going to raise up seven men who are full of the Spirit and of good repute, and they're going to take care of this issue so that we can continue to teach and to preach and to pray. And so the role of a deacon is to serve the elders in the larger body by taking on tangible, practical ministry. Right? This is benevolence ministry. Right? This can be financial ministry. This can be um, specific ministries in the church like kids or students, um, leading volunteers. This can be facilities. Right? It's the role that, that Carmen and Danny and Sean have played for years in serving this body by making sure this happens. I've never picked a song ever in eight years. Right? I've never had to worry, would the band be here? 
Like th- these three have just faithfully done it. That is the role. Whether, you, whether we call them a deacon or not, whether they served because of the title or not, they've just done it. And they have served you and the elders by doing it faithfully week in and week out so that prayer and preaching and teaching can continue to happen. Now listen, the role of deacon, maybe you're thinking, I don't want to be a deacon. That sounds like humbling. Because they have to serve. They're like the table waiters, right? If that thought has flashed across your heart or your mind this morning, would you remember the words of Jesus who came, I came to serve, not to be served. That Jesus walked in humility and emptied himself. That we see in, in Romans 15, 8, Paul writes this, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Jesus says of his, himself in Matthew 20, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We see the humility of Jesus to walk in service for us. We we, we needed it. And so the role of of a deacon is to facilitate ministry by serving. They are a lead servant. So there's not going to be meetings, right? It's going to be about work. And you'll notice that Paul focuses on the character, not on the ability to get the job done. The values of the world say this, who can get the job done most efficiently, quickest, make the most money, do those type of things, and we'll just kind of forget about character as long as they get the job done. We see this in politics. We see this in, in uh, justice world. We see this in, in schools. We see this in business. We'll, we'll kind of forget the moral side if you just get the job done. Paul says, no, 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 character matters. Now, we want the job to get done, but character matters first and foremost. There's completely different values. And so if we want to break this down just as simply as we can, elders serve the church by leading the ministry, by leading the direction, by giving some authority as they follow after Jesus. The deacons serve the body by facilitating greater access to ministry. And then church as the saints, all of us are called to serve and to be equipped for the work of ministry. That none of us get to, to, to check out here. We all have a role of making the church the buttress of truth so that people would come to faith in Jesus and he would be worshiped. And so let's end here. Look at verse, how, how they end chapter three. He says, the church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness, that he, meaning Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And so what he does is this, is he just kind of quotes this hymn. And look at what you see in the hymn. He was manifested in the flesh. Jesus came in humility and put on flesh. This is the incarnation that he came as a helpless babe. He was vindicated by the Spirit. The Spirit allowed him to do works and power, right? And he was resurrected by the Spirit. He was seen by angels as he ascended back to heaven, proving that he was who he claimed to be. He was proclaimed among the nations. This is the mission that we have been given, the mission that continues to this day, that we are going forth telling people of the glory of Jesus. The world has believed it, 
right? There's been vindication and success, and there will be a day where we will be taken up in glory as Jesus comes and returns to heaven. And so he just quotes this familiar hymn to them where it shares the whole gospel in like six lines quickly. The incarnation, the resurrection, the ascension, mission, success, vindication, and the second coming. Church, we are recipients of God serving us. Therefore, we are to be ambassadors for Him, serving others to know Him, to trust Him, to love Him, to be called to worship of Him. Some will do that as elders, and some will do that as deacons, and some will do that simply as saints, right? But there's all a role to play in the household of God being set up and ordered for God's good, for the good of those around us, and for His glory. With this idea in verse 16, that it will be proclaimed among the nations, this hope, this good news that we have. Um, We have a team who's actually um, going to Mexico City this week to serve uh, a mission and church there. And so um, Russ is, I'm just going to have the team, Russ and the Hermans and the the Cuellars, if you'll just come stand here in front of the stage. I want you to know um, we've got three families who are going. So Russ and Susan, Alexander, TV and Yvette, both y'all's wives are, are out at the moment. And then we've got Carol and Reagan and Caitlin. And so they'll be leaving on Saturday, um, spending a week or so there in Mexico City. And I just want you to have um, their faces in, in mind as you're praying for them this week. Um, and so I want to pray for them quickly. But they're, they're taking the, the opportunity to serve the nations, right, by taking the good news and the hope that we have. And so would you be in prayer for them over the next couple weeks, one, as they prepare, and and two, as they go. So let me pray. Jesus, you are merciful and you are faithful. Lord, thank you for giving a desire to serve you. Thank you for giving um, an opportunity and a place to go to serve you. Lord, we ask that you would protect them. We ask that you would give them discernment and wisdom. Lord, that they would be long-suffering and and patient as they are interacting in a different culture. Father, we pray that you would give them words um, in English and in Spanish far beyond their ability, um, that your Spirit would have prepared hearts for them to minister to, to encourage, that that we would see folks come to faith, that the believers that they, they, they interact with would be encouraged to know that they are not alone, but they are loved by a global community. And Father, would we be reminded that whether we are called to a neighbor across the street or to Mexico City or to Yemen or to Taiwan or to anywhere in the world, Father, what you've called us to is to point to you, to trust you and to depend upon you. So Father, would you fill them with your spirit and would you be glorified in Jesus' name, amen.